That song is a good news song. Thank you, Jennifer. That is true. Ani is going to be our reader today. And come on up here, Ani, if I can make you do that. She just found out this morning that she is reading this. So way to go, Ani. All right, let it rip. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they asked, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right, the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or left. God has prepared those places with the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indigent. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over with their people. The officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be the first among you must be a slave to everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well done. All right. Give it up for Ani. A very curious uh, text here, uh, which is going to be very interesting for us uh, to unpack uh, a little bit, which I'm hoping will be very uncomfortable for all of us, uh, including me. Do you ever play the game Shotgun as a kid? Not with shotguns, but the game shotgun, uh, the way it is, especially if you have siblings or you do this with friends also. You get out of the house, and especially if you knew one parent wasn't with you, uh, you yell shotgun as soon as you get out of the house. And that means what? Yeah, it means you get the front passenger seat, right, where you get to control the radio and get more AC than anybody behind you. <laughs> uh, we did it all the time. And once you're in high school, uh, it's the same kind of a thing. Your friends are going out to lunch, and you're driving. Your buddies are saying shotgun as soon as they're out because everybody wants the front seat. It's the better seat. You kind of have a situation like this where James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are saying shotgun as they're ready to ride into Jerusalem. Uh, and their idea, uh, they are thinking that their dreams have come true, uh, that all the things they've been waiting for and all the things that have been prophesied about, about the, the Messiah, the anointed one coming into power, uh, that was going to finally reverse things, that Israel was finally going to be put back on top, uh, they were hoping that that is exactly what was going to happen, that it would be a military conquest. And so they knew uh, in their hearts that this is what was going to happen because it's everything that everybody around them was dreaming about and talking about so much that they wanted to get dibs on the best seats once they got there and Jesus came into his power. Perhaps that's what they were thinking uh, when they called shotgun on their way. See, right before this, Jesus tells them in no uncertain language, it's time to go to Jerusalem. 
Uh, it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough, but it's what I've got to do. And even though Jesus was pretty explicit uh, with what he was talking about, the disciples just didn't get it. In fact, Mark's gospel portrays the disciples as clueless <laughs> over and against all the other gospel writers. Uh, the deer in the headlamp look is strongest in the gospel of Mark. The failure to fully understand what Jesus is getting at is more evidenced in Mark. They're always the ones who, after a teaching, are the ones who are saying, huh, <laughs> what, did, what did you even mean by that? And Jesus patiently is coming alongside them at every turn, trying to explain things again and again and again. What's curious about this is you have a very good news Jesus uh, going around in a good news that's different than the news that people were used to. You had a lot of people who were disenfranchised in Jesus' day, just like you do now. Uh, you had people uh, who were poorly treated because of their physical condition. Uh, maybe they had leprosy. Uh, maybe they were blind or some other ailment. And people at that time and that era looked at that as, in some cases, if not all cases, as a curse of sorts of God, that God chose this for you. Uh, and the reason they thought so is because if God is that in that large of control in that kind of a way, then your ailment must certainly be that. And we know uh, historically that blindness is one of those things which they uh, believe to be sort of a curse of God uh, for some sin that took place in your parents' past or even before, which I've taught about before. So maybe, maybe there were people like that we know uh, in Jesus' day. And when Jesus would come alongside them, he wouldn't say the same news that these people had always heard. Rather than saying to them, clearly God is not with you, Jesus, by coming alongside, embracing them, treating them as equals, he was saying, God actually loves you and God is with you even as I am with you right now. He did this over and over again. He did it with tax collectors and prostitutes. He did it with women who had been uh, treated poorly, uh, even by their religious uh, leader uh, husbands, who gave them a writ of divorce, taking advantage of a caveat in the law, who just wanted to trade up in their, in their marriage and left these women uh, in bad, bad straits. Uh, this is the kind of Jesus, that when he saw children who were not uh, esteemed at the same level that we do in our age, I would welcome them and say to his disciples, unless you come to me as a child, unless you come to God as a child, unless you welcome children, uh, you will not experience God and you'll not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus was about reversing the way things were. He wasn't simply peddling the same news that everybody else was used to and calling it good news. His good news was good because it was so different than the way of the world, which makes what James and John did so peculiar. Because what James and John did here was a way of the world kind of a play. Why do we do, why do, we do shotgun? And when we call out shotgun as we're headed to the car, now this is a pretty minor offense, right? So let me just lay, lay this out right now. If you've ever played shotgun and won shotgun, 
you're forgiven. <laughs> I say that as the youngest of four children who rarely won the shotgun. And even if I did, it didn't matter because my mean older brother would uh, beat me to the car first and make me go to the back seat. So I want to let you know, you shotgun winners, that you are forgiven, okay? But why do we do it? What are we saying when we do it? When we do shotgun, we are saying, I got there first. Too bad for you, loser. <laughs> you're in the back seat uh, where you're going to roast like a turkey, you know, in this hot summer air. That's, that's what it is, in a sense. And you're winning, and your decision to be first, you are consigning everybody else to be behind you. You are giving yourself a place of authority that you have somehow earned because you were fast enough to say, shotgun, and it meant bad things, albeit minor in this case, for those who came behind you. You want it. It's yours fair and square. This is how the world works. James and John knew this. And so when they were imagining how things would finally roll out in Jerusalem, being brothers, you know they'd had conversations. How are we going to do what we can? How are we going to call shotgun first? What's interesting in this passage uh, is that Peter is absent. At other times, it's Peter, James, and John that seem to be these three leaders that are emerging. But Peter's not there. Why isn't Peter there? Because James and John did not want him there. I wonder, I wonder how many sermons that Jesus was giving about the true gospel that God really does love everybody and is for everybody equally in every possible way, wants every person, regardless of their language, their ethnicity, uh, their place in life, wants everybody to flourish and is actively working as much as God possibly can toward that end. I wonder how many times Jesus was preaching that, that Sermon on the Mount type uh, stump speech that he did, where James and John, having heard it before and thought they knew what he was talking about, were kind of trailing off a little bit, talking together about when should we call out shotgun? When should we make our move? And I wonder what it did to them. We get an idea what it did to the community of disciples because once they finally let out what they were really feeling, which was really a way of the world kind of thing, like I said, the other disciples were immediately indignant. Were they indignant? Why were they indignant? Were they indignant because what James and John just did was so incongruent with the way and the ethos of Jesus? It's like, how dare, what are you thinking, even asking such a thing? Is that why they were indignant? Or were they indignant because part of them was like, dang it. I missed it by this much. I was just about to call out shotgun, and those two brothers beat us to it. Now we're stuck in the backseat of the buggy or whatever that might look like when you're walking around. I don't know what that would be. Why were they indignant? How do we understand this? What do we do with this? We know that Jesus corrects their vision at the end. First, he corrects it with James and John. <laughs> He's like... Are you sure Do you have any idea what you're talking about? Do you have any idea what we're about to get into? 
I've been ruffling feathers my entire ministry. Every time I come across somebody who is vulnerable, who the rest of culture has said, forget you, and I've come alongside and, and corrected that with the lens of God, it makes other people mad because it inherently challenges their worldview. When I come and I say that this person is equally loved by God, is not cursed, and I welcome them and I grace them, everybody ever who has said that person does not deserve the grace of God, does not have the grace of God, they just got very uncomfortable because this healing worker, this profound thinker Jesus, just said the opposite and they're seeing its reality in front of their face. It's causing problems. It's making people uncomfortable. The true good news of God makes this world very uncomfortable because it does not play by the same operating system. It does not obey the same rules. It does not see people the same way as the rest of the world tends to see people and therefore it operates differently. Last week or two weeks ago, uh, we talked about uh, divorce law and the people that Jesus ticked off and and giving a different view of divorce, uh, a more um, compassionate understanding and calling out two people groups, Roman authority and religious leaders both, uh, saying, you guys got this wrong, you're abusing this thing, and you're abusing women in the process? Well, guess who that made mad? Those two leadership groups. Last week when we uh, saw the rich young ruler and that story, and this guy who was pretty sure uh, it, he could buy God off, it was a transaction, if he just you know, gave enough money or did enough of the right thing, then God would love him. And Jesus totally turned that on its head and said, God is not transactional. You don't get God to do anything. You don't get God to love you more. That is the baseline. What are you going to do with your life knowing that that is a truth? And that made every rich person uncomfortable who thought that their wealth was a clear sign of God's blessing and were pretty sure as long as they kept the coffers full, God would be on their side. Jesus made everybody uncomfortable everybody. And so Jesus is asking James and John, are you sure you're up for this ride? Because it's going to get very uncomfortable. And the people who, have, who I've made uncomfortable, they're waiting for us in Jerusalem. It's not going to be pretty. And of course, in their naivety or in their desire for power, they said, of course we are. We've got it all worked out. We just want to be on the right and the left when you come into your glory. Meaning, when you take over this thing. Why do we do that? Why would they want this? What's in it for them that they would want to be on the right hand and the left hand of the guy in charge? Well, you can probably guess. Uh, immediate power, respect, security. Uh, they'd be in the inner circle. Uh, they'd be the ones calling the shots. They'd be pretty tough to mess with. Uh, all the things that our world uh, seeks and pushes for, uh, that's what they were going for. How is it that they couldn't see it? How is it that they couldn't see the error in their own ways? 
And how is it that they couldn't sense in their own hearts when they were scheming on this stuff, how it was affecting the way they saw their fellow disciples? Do you ever wonder that? We know that they were indignant when they found out that they were outdone uh, and that somebody did this for whatever reasons. But did you ever think about what James and John's scheming did to them, their hearts, about their brothers? What does it do to us when we rationalize how we are better than others or more suited than others around us? How does it mess with our vision? How does it mess with our hearts? This week, as I've been thinking about this, uh, this has been a disturbing text. Lots of things going on in my head, so I may be a little shotgunny uh, uh, when I talk about this, but the more I thought about this, the more I sat with it, the more I realized that there are some painful things to think about this. And Dar, if you could go to the next slide, it kind of revolves around these two questions. How are we like James and John? And after that, how do we live as people of the way? I see James and John as regular human beings. They're normal people. They're beyond normal for their day, if you will, because they have already shown such commitment to following Jesus, right? A lot of people didn't. A lot of people walked away. They're in it. So they're committed people, and yet we recognize that they're still affected by the enculturation of their time. And I'm asking myself the same question. How has the way that I have been formed by the culture and time and the context that I have grown up in, how has it so affected my vision and the way I think about absolutely everything? How has it so affected me that I wouldn't even know that I wasn't following the way until it slapped me in the face? Because I wonder if sometimes that's how it goes. I had one of these wake-up moments uh, when I was in seminary. Um, we had this uh, fundraising event where we bring all the board of trustees in. Uh, this is in the Chicago area. And we rented out this big banquet hall, and I was a student leader, so I got a special place at the table, and I probably sang a song or something. I don't know. Uh, and we had a big deal speaker come in that cost us a lot of money, and we had this group called GLAD uh, come in. GLAD was a Christian, one of the early Christian rock bands of the 1980s, and their band really didn't make it all that far. They were sort of making it, but not much. And then they started doing these acapella songs, and they took off like crazy. They were one of the early acapella groups uh, before it became really cool, you know, with pentatonics and all that. They way predated that. They were like, it was take six on the African-American side, and on the white side, uh, it was glad. And they were good, really good albums, really fun stuff. And they were going to be there, which I was so excited about because as a singer, I love Glad and I love to hear their songs. And so I got to meet uh, the band because of my special status as a student leader. And so I was all, you know, decked out, had a suit on, and uh, I went to meet them and I wanted to get their autograph. I don't know why and what am I going to do with that? I don't have it anymore. But I pulled out a very, very fancy pen that somebody gave me anonymously when I graduated from college. It was a Mont Blanc. Do you know what a Mont Blanc pen is? It's a very, very fancy pen. They cost back then about $200. 
for this rollerball pin. Money well spent, right? <laughs> so I bring out this fancy pin, feeling like a big deal, and I hand it to the, to the lead singer, and I say, hey, can I get your autograph? And uh, he sized me up and said, yeah, sure. And he signs his name, and then he puts a Bible reference under that. And I thought, well, that's very Christian of him <laughs> to put a Bible reference under that. And uh, so I grabbed my fancy pen and then uh, put it back in my suit jacket and went back and was excited to hear them uh, sing a little bit more. And when I got home that night, I was, this was before you could pull up the Bible on your phone and I didn't carry my Bible everywhere, right? So I had to wait till I got home to find out what treasure verse uh, this band leader gave me. And so I got home and I opened it up and it was a key verse from last week's text, where Jesus tells the rich guy, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. That was a gut punch. Because <laughs> the lead singer of Glad sized me up and he said, everything I see about you is a guy who has shaped his being and his persona on everything this world says it's supposed to look like when you're successful. You have the nice suit, you have the fancy tie, you have the hairdo, much bigger than it is now, <laughs> much browner than it is now, uh, and you even have the fancy pen to back it up. I had no idea. At that time, I was, what, 23, 24 years old? I just thought I was dressing up. I just thought I was, you know, looking nice for the banquet. And there's no problem with looking nice. That's, that's not the point. But I didn't realize how some of the things that I just simply acquired in my worldview and how I thought about things had gone so deep within me that I couldn't even see any tension or problem in it. You know what I'm getting at? And I have a hunch that this is a very human phenomenon. I have a hunch that James and John, as they were thinking about this, they weren't completely lost on Jesus and what he was about. After all, they were going to go through, Jeru through the Jeru Jerusalem experience with them, and yet there were parts of them that were like, oh, I want to secure my spot, as if, and whatever that meant. And I'm just wondering, you know, for myself, how else am I like that? And the way that I think about my life and the way that I think about the world, how I treat other people in the world, how I see other people in the world, all of this stuff. And my suggestion to you would be, how are you like James and John? Because James and John were regular human beings. This is not a story just about James and John. This is a story about how human beings work in the world. That from day one, we are brought up to, to see the world in a particular way. Do we have the capacity when we hear a different way from Jesus? Do we have the capacity to hear it and to recognize where it is different than the way that we've learned? Because that's what's happening here. Jesus gives the great reversal at the end, he says to the whole disciples now who are getting upset about who's going to have the most power, 
and they're frustrated for different reasons. Maybe they're frustrated because they, again, who knows what the mix is of you've messed up the ethos. It's not who we are, or you got there first. We don't know, but they're indignant about this. And so Jesus called them together, and the way he calls them together is to reset their thinking. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. They're in power. They've somehow justified what they do because they're in power. So whatever they do must be okay because they're the ones who are in power. They somehow earned it, and so therefore, do whatever you want. But Jesus says to them, as people of the way, but among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must be the slave of everyone else. It's not about your power. It's not about your title. It's not about your prestige, your name. It's about serving other people. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is much more than a text about uh, ransom theology about uh, substitutionary atonement. This way predates that thinking at this point. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is recognizing that there is a cost that comes with bringing the good news, and he is willing to pay it. Are we aware of what the good news of Jesus is calling us to, of what the gospel is calling us to? So, questions for you. Um, yesterday, we had uh, a men's breakfast here, which was delicious. I made the breakfast. It was actually pretty good. <laughs> and it was an easy recipe I've been doing for a while. And I'm grateful for the guys who were able to show up. I know it doesn't always work out for everybody's calendar, and that, that's cool. And uh, the guys were able to stay and get our place ready for rain so that the gutters will work, hopefully, and the roofs won't leak, hopefully. And I'm so appreciative of that. And uh, no guilt trip on anybody who, uh, who wasn't able to make it, although I am keeping a list. Uh, but the reality is... Um, I was just so grateful for the people who were able to show up uh, because they gave half a day um, where they could have done other things. You know, probably their own houses need their gutters cleaned and their roof repaired or, or just cleaned up. Um, but, you know, they chose to come together. And this happens so many times around here, but I was just thinking, you know, what a cool gospel thing to do that this has nothing to do with them. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing in it for them. If they walked after the breakfast, I wasn't going to chase them down and demand work. You know, the breakfast was theirs to, to enjoy, like it or not. Uh, but they chose to invest in it, and I'm just so grateful for that. And then later on in the day, you know, within two hours after kicking that email out uh, to Crosswalk about what we're wanting to do for the kids' program, Crosswalk did another very gospel thing. The thing is, is you aren't probably going to read any of those books or play with any of those toys. And yet, Crosswalkers stepped up fast and boldly to show support to the kids. There was this one little line that Lynn put in her email saying uh, she'll get a uh, notice anytime somebody buys something, and that will make her smile. Our car wasn't big enough to hold her smile yesterday uh, because... You know, that it doesn't always go that way. And yet, 
people gave their money for something that was way bigger than them and beyond them that will last beyond them because that's the gospel thing to do. And I'm wondering how many other ways is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, this different way, how is it calling us forward? And so I have questions along those lines just to make you uncomfortable, but also to raise our vision of what it could be. What could it be like in our extremely wealthy uh, country? What could it be like for us who, by comparison, uh, are really doing quite well on a global level, really quite well? What would it be like if we looked at it, looked at our wealth and what, what our capacity is in a kingdom of God gospel way? Um, you know, this has nothing to do with not working hard and earning money and all that, or even about wealth, but it's really a question of what do we do? What do we get to do with our wealth? How many lives can we change with our wealth? How many lives can we change with the time that we give? How many lives can we change because we actually care enough about these others who feel like they're especially vulnerable in our country and, and the world, and they're telling us this, what might change for us if we choose to lend them our ears and actually listen to their story and try to understand what they're saying? And then what more if we choose to lend them our voice, especially if we find ourselves in a place of power? What happens if we, like Jesus did, would come alongside the people who've been feeling like much less than in our country, and we actually come alongside and stand with them and say, I am with you. You are a child of God, just like me. I am no better than you. Uh, we are of the same stuff. How can I help you? What will change if we do that? How will our world change? If the people of Jesus, the people of the way, which is a different way of the world, what would happen if more and more of the people of the way really lived on the way? How might the world change? The truth is uh, that the people of the way, which is bigger than us, it's broader than us. Jesus even said, I have sheep that aren't of this flock that hear my voice. So that extends this idea of the way beyond even Christendom, that are people of the way. What does it mean? What could it mean uh, for us to be in the world? Well, here's the good news. Uh, as people of this different way, we're the ones who get to be the change agents to really see important change happen. If you're totally cool with status quo, by the way, if you're fine with how uh, governments all around the world work and you're fine with uh, wars and more wars, and if you're fine with disparity and you're fine with how our government works, is anybody fine with how our government works? But if you're fine with all that, then don't listen to anything that I'm saying and don't pay attention to anything Jesus has to say. Because as soon as you start paying attention to what Jesus has to say about how we think about other people and how we think about how the world could be, as soon as you start doing that, you will be very uncomfortable because you'll realize just like Jesus with James and John and the rest of the disciples, there is an inherent invitation to come and be different, to make a difference in the world. If we are going to be good news people, if we're going to be people of the way, it means we join Jesus, and we drink of the cup, and we find ourselves immersed, baptized in the work because it makes all the difference. Slavery didn't end in America, 
because the status quo wanted it to change. Slavery ended in America because people started to see the world differently. And they recognized it was against God for one human being to own another human being. It started to bubble up in ethical circles, religious circles. It was incredibly unpopular at first because there was so much money and commerce and our own national economy was tied to slave labor. But over time, enough people heard the good news of God, which is these people need to be free. And enough people over time said enough, making other people extremely uncomfortable. And we all know how it all went. But if it wasn't for those few who heard the word, we'd still have slavery in America. All of the things that you think about that need change in the world, they don't get changed all by themselves. But if the people of God will hear the invitation of Jesus, which is a, <laughs> a wonderful, challenging invitation, change the world. By the way, there's a cup of suffering and a baptism that is going to be tough, but oh, so worth it. You'll find yourself in the love of God so much so that even though you will go through hell, and feel like your body is just about to give out because of what you may go through, which doesn't happen to everybody all the time the same way, but you will be able to say, at least in metaphor, agreement with the psalmist, that God was there with you all along. And even though your own body was tortured, it did not prevail against you because God is bigger than the pain that you go through. God is big enough to redeem the greatest heartaches we experience. God is with us now in love. God will be with us forever the same. So how is God inviting you? Do you have the capacity to at least admit that we are mixed people, that we have been formed by this world very, very heavily, even as we are trying to be transformed by the Spirit of God on this way of Jesus. How are you like James and Zebedee? And how are we going to live as people of the way? Let's pray together. God, as we are still before you, I pray that we will have sensitivity to how you might nudge us right now how you might be dropping a word or a phrase or an image into our consciousness to say directly to us by the power of your spirit. Let's take a look at this, not in a punitive, angry way, but as a, hey, here's some good news. There's a different way to look at this. Can you sense it, congregation? Is there a thing? Maybe it's just to admit that we have conflicting forces at work within us. God, I hope that uh, as we hear your invitation, which is inherent in your gospel, I pray that we will 
be quick to say shotgun for all the right reasons, not to be ahead of anybody else, but because we are eager to join you in your work. May we be a people who recognizes what's being asked of us, that it is more than just waiting it out in our inner peace, but it is to be a part of bringing shalom into the world. May we be eager to see it realized. And to that end, we pray the prayer, which is all about that, that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for coming today. I know it was a little heavy. Hope, uh, I hope it continues to bother you the rest of your life. All right. So thanks for coming, and we will see you next week.